For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at alternatives to a physical border wall. How genome research helps science understand epilepsy. I Dream in Widescreen brings new filmmakers' work to light. And Tucson original Annie Laus is remembered. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. President Donald Trump made the construction of a physical barrier along the U.S.-Mexican border a campaign promise. Now, 100 days into the Trump administration, funding for that project has not been identified, and construction has yet to commence. Next, Nancy Montoya looks at some alternatives to the proposed border wall that are being suggested by people on both sides of the issue. You're going to build the wall? It was December 2015 when a little boy in Manassas, Virginia, asked a very simple question of then-candidate Donald Trump. What's it going to be made out of? And with that one little question came a fury of answers, first from the candidate himself. I'll tell you what it's going to be made of. So it's going to be made out of concrete rebar, rebar steel. And we're going to set them in nice, heavy foundations. But now reality has set in. Donald Trump's head of Homeland Security, retired Marine General John Kelly, whose job it is to build that proposed wall, says concrete and steel? Maybe not. Here's what he said to a congressional committee three weeks ago. What it'll look like, how tall it will be, how thick it will be, what color it will be, uh, is yet to be determined. Around 300 proposals to build the wall by U.S. companies came pouring in the first week of April. Everything from building it 70 feet high to 22 inches wide so that tourists could walk along it and take in the views of Mexico, to building 100-foot trenches to store nuclear waste. But there's one border wall proposal that is not being submitted to the U.S. government. It is being proposed to the Mexican government. We're proposing what we call a solar border. I'm James Ramey, professor of humanities at the Metropolitan Autonomous University in Mexico City. Homero Aritjis, poeta y ambientalista. Ramey is an American who teaches humanities in Mexico City, and Aritjis is a Mexican poet and environmentalist. They were on the U of A campus last week to explain their vision which is a green border. Uh, We believe that Mexico in particular doesn't need a new wall, but rather a new deal. That new deal, says Ramey, is to get private investors worldwide to build the largest solar project on Earth. And it would be built on the Mexican side of the border, and it would be controlled by Mexico. Mexico could create an enormous jobs program by creating what would be the world's largest solar array uh, out of photovoltaic panels built in segments, first in the most advantageous positions along the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexican side, and then expanding out to cover almost all of the areas of the border where there is uh, cross-border migration. I'm not an expert on immigration, says the poet environmentalist, but I have crossed thousands of borders, and I have human experience. 
You see, Romero Arajis is the president and founder of El Grupo de los Cien, the group of 100 based in Mexico City. Now, according to the Global 500 Environmental Forum, El Grupo is Mexico's most influential environmental advocacy group composed of more than 100 individuals in the arts, culture, and science worldwide. Arajis and Ramey have been joined by Mexican architects and engineers who agreed that a solar border that generates jobs and energy is much better than Trump's wall. All of the analyses that we've read until now say that it is incredibly costly uh, to, to do it the way that the current administration is proposing to do it. Um, An internal memo by Homeland Security, remember, that's headed up by General James Kelly, the man responsible for building the wall. It says the price tag is more than $20 billion, and that's twice as much as the president said it would cost during the campaign. We believe that uh, what we are proposing would be much more environmentally friendly and uh, would make there be an economic reason to have people, infrastructure, security measures in extremely remote parts of the deserts that the United States and Mexico share. And when it comes to securing the border, the two say that investors who pour their own money into a project will also make sure the investment is secure. Exactly. And not only investors, but also the people who own the land, the stakeholders all along the border, uh, the people who are in charge of the land, including the tribal territories. Now, the only tribal territory that controls a portion of the U.S.-Mexico border is the Tohono O'odham Nation, here in Pima County. The nation shares a 75-mile border with Mexico, and leaders have said they would fight any attempts by Homeland Security to build a wall on their ancestral lands. But it turns out that initial talks with the nation leaders found reaction to a solar border is different because it harnesses Mother Nature's power to bring clean energy to the nation and would respect their traditions and nature. And, and not only that, but you know, they, they really are extremely aware of the dangers of climate change. Uh, and uh, we believe that they can be leaders in uh, the entire continent for the fight against climate change by, take, by taking this incredibly negative proposal that's coming from on high and turning it around and turning it into something that could help save the planet. Sol redondo y colorado. Growing up in Tucson, Linda Ronstead often heard family members sing about respecting nature, especially the sun and its power. No one knows who wrote the ballad, El Sol Que Eres Tú, The Sun That Is You, but it goes back generations. Bueno, mira, este, yo crecí en un pueblo en México desde que era niño. Era la presencia del sol. I grew up in a little town in Mexico, he says, and since I was a child, I was in the presence of the sun that brought life to us and everything around us. Sol que tú eres tan parejo Translated, the words say, Son, that you are so fair to everyone as you spread your light. Blues. 
The ever optimistic Arahi says the sun knows no boundaries and that it is the sun that has the potential to heal a wounded border. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Every Friday, Arizona Public Media presents a program called Arizona Science that opens a window into the world of research, development, and scientific inquiry that goes on every day at the University of Arizona. Next, Arizona Science host Leslie Tolbert, Regents Professor in Neuroscience, talks with Michael Hammer. Hammer is the director of the UA's Genetics Corps and a research scientist in the Division of Biotechnology with joint appointments in ecology and evolutionary biology and anthropology. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Leslie. You started out focusing on the natural genetic variation within and between human populations over evolutionary time. Can you tell us briefly about those very exciting insights you had into early human evolution? Yes, it was a great pleasure to be involved in uh, the early 90s doing genetic research on variation in human populations. At the time, we were focusing on the Y chromosome because it was kind of the missing piece of the puzzle. And uh, we made some very interesting findings on Y chromosome diversity and how Y chromosomes in all men today trace back to Africa, which supported the out-of-Africa model. It was quite fun and interesting. Tell us what you're able to do now with the genome and with uh, the genetics of individuals. Sure. And back in those early days when we were studying the Y chromosome, we were able to use what was a new technique back then called polymerase chain reaction. You know, by the time 2000s rolled around uh, and the Human Genome Project was being completed, these kinds of technological changes allowed us to ask more uh, detailed questions about human origins, but also about medical issues that, that people have. Could we find a gene that under that uh, was responsible for a particular disease? And so more and more of that was able to be done with these techniques. And I know you're focusing now uh, very specifically on genetic variations, mutations that, rather than being beneficial, do lead to some devastating disorders in humans, especially in children. Tell us how you got into that. Well, um, being a geneticist, by 2010, we had been quite competent and, and practiced this uh, whole genome sequencing and whole exome sequencing for quite some time at that point. And for our evolutionary studies, that was terrific. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> I was also struggling with a daughter who was born in 1996 and was at five months of age, uh, developed seizures. Um, recurrent seizures, and they were very difficult to control. And her, she had developmental delays and uh, this, this very early onset form of epilepsy. But it, even though we knew it was epilepsy, we didn't know what caused it. It was suspected to be a genetic cause, but nobody else in the family uh, suffered from epilepsy. So we knew it was something unique to my daughter. Just being the kind of person I am, I, my curiosity took me to you know, ask, well, maybe we could sequence our family's genomes and, and see if we could identify the cause of my daughter's epilepsy. And what did you find? It was an interesting process. First of all, the heart, one of the hardest parts was just to get approval from the Internal Review Board, the Human Subjects Committee, to do the work because it was my own daughter. And it's, you, know, you have to be careful about doing research on your, yourself or your family. But once we had that approval, it was uh, fairly trivial at that point to, to get the data and to search through the data. And we did end up finding 
a single nucleotide change in a gene, a, a sodium, a voltage-gated sodium channel called SCN8A, um, that seemed to be the cause of her epilepsy. So tell us, what do you mean by a single, the, uh, this tiny mutation making such a, such a difference in the life of a child? Yeah, it's amazing that uh, a single change, and it's also, getting back to something you alluded to before, this, this was not a heritable change in the sense that it came from our family background. It was a random change that was unique to my daughter. So it was a mutation that either occurred in the sperm or the egg, and, uh, and the embryo then acquired that mutation. And uh, very early on, it's a gene that's expressed in the brain, and so her brain cells were expressing this uh, altered form of the protein, which normally functions in neurons to allow action potentials to be transmitted. But it was a single change. Uh, there was something like 1,980 amino acids in this protein, and one amino acid was changed at the C-terminus, and it made a huge difference. Um, it makes you wonder how, how we avoid these kinds of things all the time. And in fact, mutations happen all the time. We each carry about 75 mutations that our parents don't have. And uh, most of the time, they wind up in places in the genome that don't matter to the function of the protein or the genome. But occasionally, these deleterious mutations do cause damage. And uh, that's what causes a lot of our diseases uh, that we carry, and some of which we pass on, and some of which are unique and occur in individuals. What have you learned about this sodium channel gene? The importance of the mutation was that it was in a protein that's very important. Yeah, well, on two levels. The, the first is that my daughter was the first person to ever have a mutation that was known to cause epilepsy in this gene. And it was soon thereafter that I started getting emails from other families who said, you know, I, was, I've been, I found out that I have my daughter or my child has a mutation in this gene. At that point, I thought we should start keeping track of everyone. And here we are five years later, and we know over 150, almost 200 families around the world where genetic testing now has become commercial. So your doctor might order a genetic test, they'll sequence a panel of genes, this gene happens to be on that panel, and now we're discovering children all over the place that have this. So we started a support group, so families don't feel alone, as my family did for all those years, up to 15 years we were alone, not knowing what was causing my daughter's serious problems. And um, so on that level, we've followed these families and we've created a registry so they could enter data about their children and about their mutation and there, you know there's other mutations in the same gene that will cause problems and you've told me a little bit about that the the same gene may be playing roles in in other disorders now we're discovering that it's almost as if there's more than one disease per this one gene Sometimes the children have very devastating forms of epilepsy and they never get any of their first milestones. They never reach the first developmental milestones like lifting their head and having control over their body. And other children have much milder forms in the same gene. And then there are some children that don't even have epilepsy but have more autistic features due to mutations in this gene. So it's quite interesting that one gene can have so many outcomes. Thank you very much, Michael, for sharing your story. Yes, you're welcome. Arizona Science, hosted by Leslie Tolbert and Tim Swindle, airs every Friday afternoon at 12.01 as part of NPR's Science Friday. Beginning next Friday, May 5th, Arizona Science will also air Friday evenings at 
Every year, the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television presents a showcase at the Fox Tucson Theater called I Dream in Widescreen. It's a chance for an audience to see some of the best and brightest creations by students in the UA Bachelor of Fine Arts program. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with two of these young filmmakers. Tanya Nunez and Maggie Adams, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah. Maggie, what would you like to say about the program and why you chose what you did? I chose the film program because I've always been very interested in storytelling. I started as a theater major, so I started out thinking that I, you know, wanted to storytell through acting. And then it was only after I took a German cinema class that I realized that film was definitely where I wanted to be and how I wanted to tell tell my story and tell other stories. So Tanya, people get to see the work that you've been producing all along. It seems like there is a misconception that if people go watch a 10 or 15 minute movie, they think it was done in, in a, just a couple of days maybe or something. Yeah, like that. yeah I, that I like that you bring that up because <laughs> yes, people right now are asking me like, you're still working on your film? Yes, like uh, every minute takes, you know, 10 hours to like perfect. So, you know, it is very intensive, but it's really fun. Maggie, what is your movie and what's it all about? My film is titled Glass, and it's about a young woman who's sort of reached that point in your life where you're, you're becoming an adult and a lot of things are becoming a lot more clear to you. Um, specifically in her case, the flaws that she sees in the adults around her, mainly her mother. Um, and Ellie was raised in a very sheltered household. And so my film is about one night where she sort of breaks away from that. And she allows herself to immerse herself in the lives of two strangers. And um, by doing that, she's shown the simplicities of life. And, and without you know, addressing her problems specifically, she's able to, to just sort of enjoy a night with these two um, very interesting and beautiful humans. Um, and that's sort of what, it, what I really like and what, what's passionate to me about the, the project is, is the fact that we don't have to name her issues. We just sort of enjoy the night with her. Okay, and Tanya, what about your film? What is it called and what's it all about? So mine is called Dios Nunca Muere. Um, it translates to God Never Dies. Um, and it focuses on a legal um, single mother living in the U.S. and sort of um, focuses on just her life here and the struggle she has to go to to provide for her young daughter. Um, it's, you know, it just follows her through a few days and it focuses on just her work life but also her paranoia because of you know her situation and like you know what choices she has to make like what's right versus what's legally right and things like that so it's just like her dwelling with all these problems just because she's undocumented it sounds very timely and it sounds more like a documentary than yeah a film. i mean for sure um the the film is very realistic it's not stylized like many other movies are this one's very realistic driven and um it has a dramatic you know, it's a drama. So yes, um, but yeah, it's definitely relevant and very, you know, inspired by situations that are going on right now. Yes. And Tanya, what's it like for you to be a woman, a young woman entering this field, this career? Mm, it's exciting for the most part. Of course, it's nerve wracking. And you know, you, you kind of are faced with a lot more obstacles because it is a male dominated industry. But at the same time, it kind of like encourages you and like pushes you to work harder for, you know, all those things because you know you do have to work harder and you're from douglas arizona which yes. is a border city so that you yeah. bring that to the table as well yeah for sure yeah um yeah and I, i'm proud of that side of me um and that's sort of what inspired my movie too just my experience growing up in a border town 
And what about you, Maggie? Young, uh, female, and going into this film world, what what do you want to say about that? It's exciting, uh, for sure. You know, you see recent breakthroughs. There's so many more women that are getting recognized at film festivals. You even have a lot of directors of photography that are, are women that are being recognized, and it's, it's a great thing. And so I think it's a very exciting time for us. Um, sort of graduating and heading out into this industry. It's going to be it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it for sure. All right. Well, Maggie Adams and Tanya Nunez, thank you very much for joining us and good luck to both of you in your careers. Thank, thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I Dream in Widescreen is Saturday at 7 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. Since 1956, a corner store at 17th Street and South 6th Avenue has been a neighborhood fixture. It's one of many legacies of Roy and Annie Laus. Roy died in 2014 after a long illness, but his wife Annie, known for her cantankerous and loving spirit, continued working there six days a week for as long as she could. Many customers would stop by more to see Annie than to do shopping. She died April 11th at age 87. Andrew Brown knew Annie Laus and produced a story about her for Arizona Illustrated in 2014. You can see it at azpm.org. Last Saturday, Andrew Brown visited Annie's memorial at the Eagles Club on Stone Avenue and talked with her family about her vibrant life. My name is Marco Laos. I'm uh, the fourth son uh, from Roy and Annie Laos. There's just a, a constant stream of of memories. I mean, you, you come back to uh, to attend a, a, a funeral service like today, uh, and just seeing other people's faces is is enough to fire another neuron that you hadn't thought about in a while. And next thing you know, you're 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 weeping and sadness. She wanted to graduate from the University of Arizona so bad. She got discouraged early on by one of the deans of the in the College of Mines. It, it said, you know, we need we need you to back out, make way for for the GIs that are coming back from World War II. The fact that she had five boys and that both my mom and my dad were able to get all five of us through college with degrees from the University of Arizona is, uh, uh, I mean, I have two children right now, a 12-year-old and 14-year-old. And I can only hope that I can get these two kids through college just the way my, my mom and dad got five of us through. They truly loved each other dearly. I am Karinia Laos. I'm her oldest granddaughter. She was amazing. She just would work and 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 work. And work. I loved getting to see the last little bit of her life because it was kind of sad but kind of not so sad because we were, all, all of us were there. Jay was there, I was there, my mom was there, my dad was there, my uncles were there. Well, I'm Jeffrey Laos, I'm number two. I had some uh, conflicts with my mom and it left me uh, without a relationship for a little period of time. And what has been a blessing in disguise, uh, starting with my dad, is for, for all of us to come together, uh, nursing, uh, both my father and my, especially my mother at, uh, at home around the clock uh, has allowed me to, uh, to learn something new about, I guess the word is forgiveness. At points in my life there was lots of things I didn't want to forgive my mother for. 
uh, and I think that was vice versa on her part too with me. We did have and we came to a, a great understanding. Forgiveness lifts a lot of pressure off yourself. Truly deep down inside she wanted the very best for us. She was a very humorous woman uh, and even toward the end in death there were gestures that were made to my brother Roy and I uh, in the last few days that were gestures of humor and uh, that she was uh, almost fully co cognizant of what was going on and she saw a little humor in it. Whenever I got out of hand, which was quite often by the way, she would take her shoe off and she would throw it at my head. And she hit me a lot of times. Yes, Roy Laos, the oldest first, a lot of responsibility. To be honest, I'm, uh, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Not really quite sure. Losing my mom has been tough on me. She used to take in all kinds of stray animals, so we always had all kinds of animals at the house until my dad had a fit and then would put them in a gunny sack and take them away and they'd never, we'd never see them again. But that was my mother, she had a heart, very big heart. She knew how to communicate. She knew that in order to get something from life, you had to give back. She uh, loved to be uh, in a fight. She loved to believe in a cause and that put her in a situation where she had adversaries and she would fight. The one thing that always impressed me about her from a, a strategic standpoint was she was able to uh, protect uh, the El Tiradito wishing shrine. So she found out that there was a technicality that you can't build a federal highway if there is a property in its way that's on the National Historic Site. So she got the El Tiradito wishing shrine put on the, as a National Historic Site and it stopped the Butterfield Freeway. It was like a card game. She played the card game and won and took all the stakes on the table. She, she didn't have to put too much effort into upstaging you. She would do it all the time. It came naturally for her. Enrico Baffert Laos. I am the number three son. We were very close as a family. Uh, we fought a lot. I started working at the uh, family business, which was the Arizona Pharmacy, when I was seven years old. So I, I learned many things there. I learned uh, work ethic. I learned how to be punctual and on time, have, have a sense of responsibility. When we were growing up, we hated it, but in the long run, it was the best thing for us. My mom used to have a 1955 uh, Cadillac, and it was uh, banana yellow colored, and it had a white top. And I remember one Sunday, Sunday afternoon, she, she was hell-bent on packing all of us kids up, and my dad worked all the time on Sunday. So she said, you know what the heck with it? We packed a picnic, she loaded us all up in the Cadillac, and we went down to Pina Blanca Lake, spent the afternoon there. And that, that was a lot of fun, because we very rarely did that. And my mom was very spontaneous about it too. And when my mom told you she was gonna do something, she, she always followed through and did it. And she was just full of energy all the time. And she always had a mission and a purpose. It was a lifetime that I would, wouldn't trade for the world, and my mom and dad made it very special. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. 
Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.